from the front row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Ogi Chiwo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in the field of public health and outside of it. Okay, what are we talking about today? Well, we had a regularly scheduled interview to talk about alcohol use disorders and how people recover from them. But we couldn't resist asking some questions about how our new COVID-19 reality will complicate alcohol use disorders and how people recover from them. Our guest this week is Dr. Paul Gilbert, an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa. His research focuses on the risk of developing an alcohol use disorder, recovery from alcohol use disorders, and finally, equity in alcohol use disorders. <laughs> All right, here's our conversation with Dr. Gilbert. So thank you so much for coming in today. Can you state your name and what you do? Sure. I'm Paul Gilbert, and I'm an assistant professor in community and behavioral health at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. What's your research in uh, at the College of Public Health? My primary research area is alcohol use and harms related to drinking and recovery from alcohol use disorders. So thinking about alcohol use disorders, what are alcohol use disorders and how do they begin? That is a good question, and it's a little complicated to answer. And this is really one of the things that I enjoy about my work, what I find so interesting about this topic. There are several different ways that we could define it. And, you know, the, the old way that we used to talk about it was alcoholism. And, and that's still really current or used a, a lot in popular sort of culture, just our general everyday conversation. But when we think about it in sort of scientific terms, we, we really have two different things that we look at. There's either hazardous or high risk drinking. So that's a focus on the behavior, you know, the amount and the frequency that people consume alcohol and, and the things that happen when they consume more or less the immediate harms, you know, car crashes, violence, things like that. And then there are alcohol use disorders, which are actual, it's, a, it's an actual diagnosable condition. And that is really based on the symptoms or the, the after effects of alcohol consumption. So it's not so much defined by how often you drink and how much you drink, but what happens as a result of drinking. You know, do you have physiological changes, you know, withdrawal symptoms, tremors? Do you have blackouts? Um, do you have difficulty fulfilling social or family or work responsibilities? Um, have you engaged in behaviors that endanger yourself or other people? Uh, things like that. Have you built up a tolerance to alcohol, you know, needing to consume more and more to get the same sort of effect? And it's really focused on sort of the, the after effects of drinking and the behavioral responses to drinking. So, so that's the main distinction here. Um, and I think for the general population at large, most people will look at hazardous drinking as the outcome. And, and I've done both. So there's one line of work that I look at just trying to understand patterns of drinking in the population at large. Where do we see heavy drinking? What's related to that? What might be driving that? And, and then how might we intervene to, to essentially dial it back? And then also another area of work is looking at just folks who meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So that, that diagnosable problem 
how are they getting help and how are they recovering from that? Uh, you know, what sorts of treatment are they using? Or more importantly, you know, where do we see the gaps in treatment, the unmet need, and how might we address that? So that's a, maybe a bit rambling already, uh, uh, an answer to your, your question, but those are the, the sort of the main ways that I've, I've done my work and in, in the way that in general, the field conceptualizes, you know, alcohol problems uh, in general. Well, thanks for giving the background on it. And if you don't mind me kind of moving into that need, mm-hmm. what are the pathways for people to recover from alcoholism? You know, that is a really great question. And um, people spend their careers researching that, trying to understand the different pathways. Traditionally, we, we've thought of treatment, meaning specialty services. So these are things like, you, you know, detox, which is a medical service for people withdrawing from alcohol, getting alcohol out of their system. Um, and then rehabilitation services, which tend to be more intensive, say counseling and therapeutic services, the, probably the most widely known is cognitive behavioral therapy. It could be delivered as an outpatient service, you know, uh, an appointment you go to perhaps every day, perhaps once a week, whatever the schedule is. It could be inpatient, um, you know, a hospitalized service. There's other sort of specialty services similar to that, things like recovery communities, sober houses. All of these things, though, are, are really specialist uh, services designed to help folks deal with their problem. And then there's this whole wide group of essentially mutual help groups, the best known of which is Alcoholics Anonymous or AA or 12-step groups, similar versions of that, which, you know, honestly, a lot of people in, in the general public, when they think of treatment for an alcohol use disorder, they'll think, oh, 12, 12-step groups or AA. But in the scientific community, we don't necessarily consider those treatment. They are structured programs generally delivered in lay settings or by lay people. So not people trained as you know, therapists or uh, psychi- psychiatrists or, or other, uh, uh, other specialists, but people with a deep intimate knowledge and, and they have some skills and there's a structure and there's especially for the best known one, AA, it's, it's highly structured um, and, and does seem to be quite successful when it's a good match for, for people. But then there's this whole other broad category of other things that people do that we really don't understand very well, the sort of lay strategies, the non-specialist strategies that could include things like talking to clergy, um, you know, talking to just a friend who may be in recovery or have dealt with a problem in the past. And there's a whole lot that I think that people do on their own that we don't really fully understand what what's successful or what makes it successful for this person and not that person. One of my goals in, in my research really is to help expand the repertoire of available responses that we have. You know, there's always going to be some people that should go to treatment, that need treatment, that that's the best, uh, you know, response for them. Um, and then there's other people who are going to go to mutual help groups and 12-step groups, and that's going to work really well for them. But we also know at the same time that there's a lot of people where that doesn't work or it doesn't fit. And, and maybe to tell you a little bit about the, the background, AA in particular has had a, a long history of being criticized for uh, some sexism. Um, you know, it was founded by two men and for a long time talked about you know, folks with alcohol problems being men. And the only time women came up were as the supportive wives who were 
you know, helping their, their husbands recover. You know, AA has changed a lot and has come a long way, but you know, sometimes people still, um, you know, just don't find that so receptive. I shouldn't, should say women. Um, it, it still has that history and, and sometimes some hanging on. And then it also has this real strong spirituality or, or, uh, you know, emphasis on a higher power that some people don't respond well to, don't like. Other people do, and that fits them well. There's also the very first step, admitting you're powerless over alcohol and turning your life over to your higher power, um, that some people find really disempowering, and, and they don't respond well to that and say, like, no, actually, I should have the ability to, to change my life, to take control, to fix my situation. Um, so really, you know, one of the fascinating questions is um, out of this whole range of things that people might do, what works best for different people? How do we match people to the best service? And, and like I said, there's this sort of third category of lay strategies or things that people might do on their own, not going to treatment, not going to mutual help groups or 12-step groups, but they're doing something uh, that works for them and trying to figure out exactly what that is that, that's working, who it works best for, and how do we, you know, how do we expand the range of uh, options for people? I should say by, by way of background too, um, just, just to fully explain for, for listeners and everybody that we've known for a long time that there's a big gap in getting services to folks who need it, that probably at any time, you know, there may be something like 15% or so, 15 to 20% of folks with an active alcohol use disorder are actually getting any sort of services for it. So that leaves the majority of folks with some sort of need not getting it. And if you think about this as a health condition, which we do now, it's no longer thought of as a, a moral failing or a personal character defect, but you know, addiction is a disease. And we would never accept such a low level of treatment for any other health condition or disease. Um, it just, it's inconceivable. And we've recognized this for quite a while. And there's been a lot of effort to increase uh, treatment uptake, to make treatment more available, more appealing, to uh, figure out how we could get people into it, e either getting folks into formal specialty treatment or doing things like 12-step facilitation, helping folks into mutual health and 12-step groups. But over the decades, we just haven't seemed to be able to budge the, the level of people getting help. So that, that's one of the things that motivates me to, to think about how do we expand the repertoire of services? How do we expand the options? How do we figure out what, uh, what we could do? And you know, one of the things that I am really interested in, in thinking about is what if we could develop, say, low burden, easier to, to use, I don't know what it would be, interventions, techniques, something that people could do maybe earlier in the course of a problem, if you start to recognize it earlier before it becomes more severe, maybe there are more cost-effective or even more efficient things that folks could do that would prevent it, you know, getting into the situation where they need more intensive services, but it's harder to get them to it. So, yeah. uh, and that, that does bring up an interesting kind of point in prevention, right? When you prevent someone from actually going down the line and becoming, you know, having problematic alcohol use, uh, they can almost not even show up in some of the statistics down the line. And so it's, it's interesting to think about like if we start that intervention upstream and prevent people with alcohol use disorders from 
having serious side, uh, downsides, then we'll actually see less people with alcohol use disorders kind of popping up in the data, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that I like to re- remember is um, Jeffrey Rose's prevention paradox or part of the, the strategy of preventive medicine that he wrote, um, that we can have a really profound effect on the population at large, whether we're looking at you know a town or a county, a state, even the nation, if we can get individuals to make just small changes, things that aren't going to be a big burden. And this could be, and a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll describe it as, you know, if we could get everybody who's currently drinking to just dial it back a little bit, you know, a couple drinks less over the course of a month, something that most people probably wouldn't even notice. It's not going to affect their daily life. But over the course of a year, over the course of millions of people, this has a really profound effect in reducing alcohol consumption. And, and we know that 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 will have a big effect on alcohol-related harms. And, and oftentimes we're, we're prone to looking at, you know, the, the really extreme cases. And, and it's not just with, with alcohol, but almost any sort of disease and any sort of behavior that we're concerned about. We'll look at the extreme cases, the high-risk cases, when in reality, and this is the, the fundamental part of Rose's paradox, is that there's going to be more cases of disease or more problems arising from the large majority of the population at low or moderate risk than those at the high risk that, that tend to grab our attention. So, you know, I, I'll also often talk to, to community groups and say, you know, we'd all be better off. The whole state would be better off if we all just dial it back a little bit. Those of us who drink would just dial it back a little bit. Um, that would have a really profound effect in aggregate, whereas individually, we probably wouldn't notice it much. Yeah. And one other thing that as you a little bit earlier you were talking about was you know people who uh were able to quit through or quit or reduce their harm through lay people or lay strategies and it's interesting to think about them as well because they must be kind of hard to find and study because you can't because they may not identify as alcoholics so they may not um yeah or like you know they may not identify that they had an abuse problem because they were able to quit on their own. And so it's like, oh, I don't want to, because we've stigmatized people with alcohol use problems, we, you know, they may say, oh, well, I don't want to be one of those people. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head and, and something that I'm grappling with in my current study right now that, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to do research with folks who seek treatment. But, but as I said, that's the minority of folks in need. Um, and even folks who go to, say, 12-step groups, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is anonymous. It's really difficult to do research, um, especially to, to assess outcomes or, you know, the effectiveness of it because they protect people's anonymity. And then there's that large group of folks that are somewhere out in, you know, in the community, out in the world that maybe they don't even use the term, you know, they don't describe themselves as being in recovery. Um, So how do you find those? And I'll tell you, I have a a brand new study that was just funded last fall that I'm ramping up right now, where I am going to be gathering a national sample of folks with a resolved alcohol problem and assessing uh, things like how they define recovery what sort of services they've used. And and what I'm expecting to find is essentially three different groups, the folks who went to treatment, and maybe they also went to a 12-step group or not, or did other things. And then there's a group that didn't go to treatment, but did go to mutual help or 12-step groups. 
And then there's that third group of folks who didn't do either one of those things, but somehow managed to overcome their problem. And with all of those, I'll be uh, assessing things like, you know, recovery capital and social support and the different strategies for change and trying to figure out what defines each group and how successful each group has been at resolving their problem. But that really is a challenge trying to find other people because, um, you know, there isn't a place that we would necessarily go to find them. They are kind of out hidden in the population. So in the end, what I'm uh, what I expect to do is have to screen probably about 35,000 people wow. to get to my sample, my target of having 1,500 people in recovery uh, to include in my study. So it's a large number of folks where I have to go out and, and look for them. And uh, luckily, I think it'll be a pretty quick screen, pre pretty quickly with just a couple questions asking folks if, uh, you know, do you consider yourself in recovery or did you used to have a problem that you've now resolved? Uh, but, uh, but yeah, that, that really is a, a challenge. How do you find these people when, uh, we, we don't necessarily have a place to go to, to look for them. All right. So can you talk a little bit about health equity in recovery? Yeah, I'd be glad to, because this is a theme that, that kind of cuts across pretty much all of my work where I think about issues of equity and disparities and, you know, justice in, in health. The, the main way that this has come up in my work on treatment and recovery is really looking at gender disparities. This is something that we've seen for quite a while. We know that it exists, that women are less likely to get help than men when they do have an alcohol use disorder. And, and trying to understand what's driving that, how do we fix that? And boy, there's a whole lot involved in that. There's historically the the greater stigma that women face you know, with drinking. And in fact, you know, 100 or more years ago, we had really different drinking patterns where you know, women would only drink in the home. Um, they wouldn't go out in public so much. Bars were places where men went to drink. Um, and that changed a lot pretty rapidly over the 20th century. But for a long, long time, you know, women were, were less likely to be drinkers than men and tended to consume less than men, although they've been catching up over the last decade. So that gender gap has been closing. But along with that, we've also seen that women are less likely to get help for treatment, whether it's that specialty, uh, you know, specialty treatment, 12-step groups, other things. And it's also complicated by a lot of other, other factors that, um, you know, women face that men don't, things like having this, this sort of concept of second shift work, like you may work outside the home and then you have work at home taking care of family or children or other responsibilities that women disproportionately shoulder, men don't face the same. Um, there's a lot of extra pressures that women may face that could either, well, that, that could keep them from, from seeking treatment. They may have fewer resources than men. You know, insurance is so often tied to your work. Um, you, if you're working part-time or in sort of temp positions, or you may not be in a position that has benefits that covers, you know, treatment services, therapy, or things like that, you're at a disadvantage. Um, there's concerns about childcare. You know, if you do want to go to a meeting or uh, treatment, you know, is somebody going to look after your kids? If you have kids to look after, um, we have that in place. Even other resources like just the, the money to, to pay, whether it's a copay or paying fully for services, it gets really complicated quickly. One of my um, 
most recent papers that came out last year, I was able to look at some of the differences in reasons that men and women cited for not going to treatment. So these were people, and this was a secondary analysis of a, a national survey, but I did a little bit deeper dive looking at folks who recognized that they had a problem but did not seek any help. And then they got a, a series of questions about the reasons not to go. And it was really interesting. There are some common reasons um, shared by both men and women alike, equal, equally likely to endorse things like, you know, I didn't know where to go or, uh, you know, I thought the problem would get better on its own. But then there were also gender differences suggesting that there may be different ways that men and women are conceptualizing either the problem or the barriers. You know, I think men were more likely to say things like, you know, I didn't know where to go or I tried to get help before and it didn't work, so I'm not going to, to try it again. Golly, I don't have the paper in front of me, so I can't remember what some of the other women's, uh, there, there were some reasons that were more likely endorsed by women and not by men. I can't remember off the top of my head what those were. But that was an interesting thing to see that, okay, there are both common reasons folks don't seek help, but also some distinctly gendered reasons, you know, reasons that women or men don't seek help that are unique. Yeah, well, thank you so much for for sharing that. So I want to kind of shift directions now from talking about alcohol use disorders in broad terms and and think about the current situation that we all are in right now. So what about alcoholism and the current COVID-19 outbreak and isolation concerns you? So there are two big concerns, and this is a great question. I'm glad you asked about it because it's been on my mind and colleagues and I have been talking about it. How do we respond? So there's two things that we're concerned about, the uh, increase in consumption and decrease in support for recovery. So the increase in consumption, you know, anybody who's been on social media has probably seen people making light of the situation by talking about their quarantinis. Um, we've seen, you know, some, some responses to business shutdowns, you know, restaurants are offering drinks to go in covered containers. We still have our, our open container law. So uh, you're not permitted to have open containers in vehicles. But yeah, one of the concerns is that the, the pandemic, the, the isolating, the social distancing may actually be driving more drinking, which you know could increase risk for alcohol-related problems. It could be temporary, but for some people, it could actually lead to you know, more serious problems. And we also know that alcohol consumption affects immune system responses. You know, it, it decreases your ability to fight off uh, infections when you're drinking. And that's, that's at all levels. So there is a, a bit of a concern that, you know, we may be seeing an uptick in drinking, you know, and part of this is, is certainly to be expected because alcohol use is a really common response to stressors. Um, one of many, you know, people might turn to food exercise, sex, other things, things that could be, you know, abused, but it's a really common coping response for stressors. So not surprising to see an uptick, but we are a bit concerned. My colleagues and I have been talking about this, about what this might set in motion in terms of maybe longer term or longer lasting harms where people are drinking more, drinking to excess too easily, and maybe not realizing that they could be getting into trouble or that this isn't a healthy coping strategy or, or just the concern is just to try and keep it in balance, in check, not to go to excess. So that's one aspect of it. If you oh, don't mind sure, me yeah. jumping in before we go into that second aspect, yeah. the, the thing that in my mind is 
is kind of popping up is when I lived in New Orleans, whenever there's a hurricane, people would just kind of drink their way through the hurricane. We call it a hurricane. And like, I think everyone is thinking about this as like an isolation vacation, but it's not, it's, it's going to be much longer. And I think that there's a difference between going to, you know, going somewhere and having a week where you drink a little bit more than you expect versus having, creating this habit of drinking multiple times, you know, oh, I'm just going to have an extra drink tonight. But this is going to be a long grinding process. And potentially in my mind, that's creating a habit to deal with this large amount of stress that we're all going to go through. And this is before the, you know, we anticipate economic damage from this. And so right, right. even more stress coming up. And, and that's a great way to think of it as, you know, developing this habit of drinking either more frequently or greater quantities than we typically would and how that might yeah, it might be harmful for us in the long run or maybe in the short term with suppressed immune responses or, or even simply something, something as simple as, you know, weight gain and, you know, we can't get out and exercise as much. And yeah, all, all of these things that, that lead to just, you know, poor health. And but I interrupted you. You have a, that second oh, point you were going so to. So the, the second thing that people are, people that, you know, who, who pay attention at, you know, alcohol disorders and research and treatment and such you know, a lot of us are very concerned about the social distancing and and isolation and and diminished support for folks in recovery. If you can't get out to your meeting, you can't go to your treatment center, you can't go to your therapist or counselor, how are you maintaining recovery? How are you getting the support that you need? Now, there's been a really impressive and quick response to switching meetings, things like AA meetings, are now held online. And, and I should say, there's been a lot of stuff happening online for a long time, a lot of resources that some people were taking advantage of, but it, I don't think it was really all that wide, widely known or widespread. But just recently, there's been this real push to put resources online. But you know, there are still barriers for people, depending on you know, whether you have access to reliable internet, um, if you can log on at the right time, if you have a, a place where you could log on, you know, do you have a, a private space in the place you're living where you could log on to an online meeting? Yeah, so that, that's, that's a big concern. And I don't know if we have a really a, a good understanding of the full scope of what might be happening. Um, and then there's the whole group of folks that, like I said before, you know, they don't go to mutual help groups. They sort of 12-step groups turn them off. So even if we put a, as many meetings as we want online, if, they're, if that's not a fit for them, if they're not going to go in the first place, no matter how many meetings we hold online, that, that's just not going to be a help for them. So what do we do in place of that? Or what else could we do? Um, and I think the main thing right now, what I've seen is that we've, tra- we've tried to, to publicize what is available if folks want to uh, take advantage of that. But also just encouraging people to you know, reach out for wherever they find support, spouses, friends, family, other folks, um, taking advantage of whatever they can uh, to help support them. It's a bit uncharted territory. We're not quite sure what works best in this situation since it's, you know, it's not something that we've encountered before. But um, I'm a guy who likes to see the glass half full. So I like to think that we are going to come away with this with a lot of new ideas again, in that idea of sort of expanding our whole range of services we could offer, um, that this is going to generate a lot of new ideas about what we can do to support recovery, 
in non-traditional ways, things that we haven't thought about before. So um, I like to stay hopeful that way. But uh, yeah. that, that's maybe a little long, long-winded yeah. answer to your, you know, the two main things that, that I see, I and my colleagues have, have been really focusing on in, in light of the current pandemic, the, you know, increased risk of excessive drinking and then concern about supporting folks in recovery. Yeah, and, and with the people, for people who are in recovery or are maybe noticing that they have, they have a problem, what advice do you have to them or just anyone who's attempting to manage their alcohol consumption while in quarantine or in isolation? You know, this, this is a bit anecdotally, and I am not a clinician. I'm not a therapist. Um, I, I'm more, I often describe myself as a behavioral epidemiologist. You know, I study the patterns of behaviors in society. Um, but what I have heard over and over again is that reaching out to somebody or having that sort of human connection really is important, um, whether it's somebody that you just find online on a, you know, a chat site or uh, a site like intherooms.com um, or a friend or somebody you know. But it's really difficult, I think, to, to deal with it totally on your own. So having a sounding board, having somebody that you trust to whether just hear your concerns, to maybe bounce ideas off, help, help you get advice. But, you know, for folks who are maybe early in the stage, even just wondering, like, could I have a problem? Is this something to be concerned about? There's a really great website that the NIH has put up um, called Rethinking Drinking. You can just Google Rethinking Drinking and it'll pop up and it has all sorts of information about what we consider high risk or low risk drinking. And you can compare your, you know, your pattern. And for a lot of people, I think probably you know, it may be the realization like, oh, I, I seem to be drinking a little too much or a little too frequently. Maybe I need to dial it back. They may not have gotten to that point where it's, you know, a diagnosable disorder. And that would be ideal, you know, catch people early on when it's easier to change. And, and uh, yeah, they, they, uh, but that's a, that's a great place to go. There is also, uh, if folks are looking to get more structured help, again, NIH has a, uh, a website, what they call uh, Treatment Navigator. I think it's called, I can double check. And if you want to put it in the show notes or anything, send you the link. Yeah. But that is a really similar website where it's got resources where people can sort of suss out, you know, what is treatment? What do we mean by treatment? What to look for in a treatment program? How do I find a treatment program? You know, where's this directory of resources in my area? But that really would be for folks who, um, who, who are looking for, actively looking for help to make a change where these might be the folks rather than just dialing back their drinking, changing their, their patterns are at that stage where, no, this is a diagnosable problem. They've, they've reached the point of, of a disorder and, and they need more, uh, more formal or more specialist help. Uh, but that's a great resource there too. Thank you so much for sharing with us about, about both alcohol use disorders in general and during COVID. We're going to change directions now. Mm-hmm. So uh, to just to our two closing questions. The first is, what is one thing that you thought you knew but later realized that you were wrong about? Boy, that is a good question. When I, when I saw that you, you sent me that one, I thought, oh, that is really good. That's very insightful. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll tell you, my first response is something different than my main line of research in alcohol use. I've got a secondary line of research in Latino community health, and, and in particular in non-traditional migration destinations like like Iowa, like Midwestern states, states that don't have a long and large historical Latino presence. Um, 
there has been this recent move to use Latinx instead of Latino or Latina. And I'll tell you, when I first heard it years ago, I, I thought, oh, that just doesn't sound right. I, I thought like Latino, Latina, you know, that's grammatically correct. That's, that's what we should use. And I've changed my opinion completely after talking with people and, and seeing examples and, and getting some practice using it. Um, and this is a little bit different for folks who speak Spanish. So they'll, they'll understand that, you know, everything in, in Spanish is gendered. It has grammatical gender. And we don't really have that as much in, in English. But this is a move to be more expansive and inclusive when talking about people and things. And it sounds really odd when you first hear it. People say, bienvenides, uh, instead of bienvenidos or bienvenida. There's different adaptations, but I've really come around to embrace that and think like, oh, this is actually a pretty cool idea to, yeah, just be inclusive of people that we don't need to be so strictly gendered that things are male or female, that there's actually more of a, more, more wiggle room or, or in between or gray area. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing that I think, coming back to my primary line of, of research, that I, I don't know if I'd say I, I was wrong at first, but I've, I've changed my, my opinion. You know, the, the party line, the official stance in the alcohol research world is that mutual help group, 12 groups and 12-step groups are not treatment. But I've really come to think that, that there's something very, very close to treatment that, that's going on there, that they are specialty services, meaning they are about substance use and seeking recovery. They are very structured. If you think of, you know, AA is sort of the, the one that's emblematic, the longest, the one that's been around the longest, is highly structured, has the, the steps and the traditions and the literature and the processes and everything. So there, there really is something there that works. So I think I've relaxed my position, or, or maybe I disagree a little bit with the, um, you know, the official stance, that it's probably closer to treatment than we, we recognize. It's a different sort of animal, a different sort of thing than, say, rehabilitation and detox services and medication-assisted treatment, those maybe more clinical services. But, but there's something there that, that we certainly can't dismiss. So um, that's something that's evolved, I guess. And I imagine that alcohol use disorders manifest themselves in different ways and being able to treat them may, you may be able to attack them in different ways for different people. And yeah. I imagine, you know, we call them, you know, as you say, you know, it might be a treatment. Well, you know, we are finding more and more that we've neglected mental health and in favor of, and we've neglected kind of indirect effects in public health and atta uh, attacking problems from like a community perspective. And I think that as we learn more and more that there are more options potentially for doctors um, and for, for us as interventionists. Okay, I'm gonna just go to our last question today. Uh, how are you staying sane during all these COVID-19 <laughs> changes? Well, I am doing my best to be as active as I can in whatever way I can safely. So that means, um, Pretty much every lunchtime, I take a walk around my neighborhood. I have never spent more time walking through my neighborhood than I have <laughs> the last couple of weeks. But I, I found it's really important to just get out. I can't spend, you know, every day, all day uh, in my house. And of course, it's, it's actually been really nice to see a lot of my neighbors out at the same time. I think all of us are feeling a little bit of a cabin fever or a little stir crazy and, and trying to get out more. But we've also been keeping our distance from each other. So that's been reassuring that, you know, we, 
we keep our safe distance, but we see each other out. I, I kind of hope that will continue after everything is resolved, that we'll, we will be out in our neighborhoods more and seeing our neighbors. So, so that's definitely helped. And, and even just um, trying to get as much physical activity as I can in the house. Uh, every time I go down to the basement, I, I, I'll do two or three steps up and down the, or trips up and down the stairs just to get a little more movement um, or just you know, build in things like that. That's probably the best that I've been doing, just trying to, to get, get as much physical activity as I can where I can. Yeah, I've definitely, I have seen so many more people out and it's, it's actually quite wonderful because I live around the block from Karai Mahachi, uh, who was on the pod mm. a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago uh, for all of you listeners out there, but he, he's one of my good friends and it's, it's kind of funny. He and I will like yesterday I was on a run and I saw him um, and across the street and it was the weirdest thing. Like I got to see another human being and have a conversation. Yeah, it was across the street. Right, uh, right. <laughs> but I got to see a human being and talk to them without having to use a strain and it blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's pretty nice that we've got the technology where we can still, you know, have our video calls and, and I, I could mostly work the same as I, I have been, but, um, but I do really miss the, the face-to-face uh, contact with people. So, uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Thank you for asking me. This has really been a pleasure and uh, I, I'm glad to have a chance to chat and, and I'll leave some of the resources. I'll send you some of the resources in case you have show notes or can, can yeah. share those. Uh, yeah, we'll make sure they get in the show notes. So, okay, what do you think about this episode? First of all, I love the distinction that Dr. Gilbert made or clarified between alcohol use disorder and alcoholism. I personally never knew like there were two different things. I always thought it was one and the same. If you're an alcoholic, you have an alcohol use disorder and it's just like one thing. But as I said, alcohol use disorders are diagnosable. You can go to the doctor and then their symptoms, it's like, okay, what happens as a result of drinking? So your consequence of drinking while well, then alcoholism is your behavior, really. So hazardous or high-risk drinking. So that's like two different things. Because I think, I guess genetics is more so a component of alcohol use disorder and not alcoholism. Because I could drink more than someone else, and but my consequences are way less than the other person because of how their body metabolizes the alcohol of that gene so i thought that was really interesting and so yeah i i also found it i also found it really interesting um i'm actually someone who who is a recovered alcoholic um but i was lucky enough to be able to recover without formal treatment so for me this was a really interesting conversation to sit in and as i've listened to the episode again as i edited it's really been just fascinating for me so i really could relate to everything dr gilbert brought up both in in general because uh, I've lived that experience, but also because I can only imagine if I was still like, if I was still drinking, like how tough this time would be, be being confined in a place and bored with really the only outlet for myself being alcohol. And so, yeah, I, I really thought that was an interesting perspective that, that he brought up through my own lens, you know? Additionally, I thought it was really interesting Additionally, I thought it was really interesting to hear Dr. Gilbert talk about where we focus our responses to substance use disorders 
by not just focusing on high-risk populations, but focusing on the general population. If we lower everyone's risk and move the average number of drinks consumed, it reduces that a person on the margin becomes an alcoholic. Yes, I was actually even going to ask you like what your thoughts were on that. Because personally, listening to it, I could definitely see the how maybe even just targeting one group then definitely creates that whole us versus them in versus out um, theme in the community. And I just feel like because there's really no safe level of alcohol, even if like, okay, you can have like a wine or two and there's things saying, yeah, it definitely helps to like, but yeah, I think just like coming in like, okay, as a community, how can we support each other? There's no need to like pick one person out and say, oh, well, you are doing da-da-da-da. It's like, we're all in this together. What can we do? How can we, you know, support, help each other grow? Shifting shifting directions. How are you coping with COVID this week, okay? I am actually doing great. I will say that, like, it's not even as bad as I, and I think why I'm doing better is because I have um, adopted the pomodromo, I say wrong, but the pomodromo technique to increase productivity. So it's that whole 25 minutes on, five minutes off, like breaks in between. So I just started that like two days ago and I feel great. That's all I have to say. I just feel like I'm doing more things or I'm using my time lucratively. I don't feel like I'm always in this fog of like, Oh, oh my God, you know, of tiredness and hopelessness. It's just like, a, yeah, I feel tired, but great tired. Like, good. Yeah, so I've been doing good. Washed my hair. <laughs> How are you, though? I'm good. I, uh, since this is audio and not, and not video, you can't see, but I have cut off all of my hair. Um, I've shaved my head, so I have... I guess I've washed my hair, but I haven't put too much thought into it because I don't really have any. Um, you guys, Ian looks like the avatar. <laughs> <laughs> Un- unfortunately, not complete with the blue, ta- uh, blue tattoo on my forehead. Right. But I've, I've also been getting into a bit of routine. I've been trying to work out a lot more and run a lot more to keep myself focused. Um, I've also been doing kind of like the every, every hour or so do like five minutes or 10 minutes of just like strength training. Uh, push-ups, sit-ups, that sort of thing, um, just because I can't sit still for more than an hour at a time. And so I've been forcing myself to move, and that's really been helping me to stay on task because when I'm moving, I'm getting all the like off-taskness in my brain out of it, and then I'm not finding myself on Twitter for 25 minutes uh, at a time, which I have been in the past. So yeah, I agree. Uh, I feel like we're – hopefully you out there, listeners, are also finding your rhythm um, cause it's hard. I mean, everything out there is scary and, and it, when you do find that rhythm, it can be really comforting. All right. Okay. What's something that's made you happy this week? Um, um, I don't know. The sun, my family, I'm just grateful for life. I'm just grateful to be alive and that makes me happy. That's awesome. I think for me, it's been, um, yeah, just rediscovering like how much I like running. Like I've been hate running for the last couple of weeks, just kind of like, Oh, I need to do this. But th- this last week has been really nice to just like, you know, you're out and like halfway through the run, you're like, Oh yeah, I do enjoy this. And it's great. So but anyway, audience, if you have something that's keeping you happy, let us know. Um, and okay. will tell us exactly where you can find us. Right. So that's it for this week, you guys. 
Thanks for tuning in. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Let us know what you thought about this episode and series at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. That's cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Ian Bukta and Oge Chibo. It was edited and produced by Ian Bukta. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Paul Gilbert, for coming on the pod this week. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week. Stay safe and practice social distancing.